difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie that we've podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Scott Tobias. Genevieve Kosky. And Tasha Robinson. On last week's episode, we discussed The Last of Sheila, a star-packed mystery set amongst the rich and famous, directed by Herbert Ross and written by Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins. Now we're turning to that film's direct descendant, Ryan Johnson's Knives Out sequel, Glass Onion, colon, A Knives Out Mystery. Only one member of the original Knives Out cast returns, Daniel Craig, who again plays the gentleman sleuth Benoit Blanc. Here, Blanc, for reasons that won't really be clear until much later in the film, joins a group of old friends assembled by tech billionaire and self-described disruptor Miles Braun, played by Edward Norton, on a private island. The Agenda, a murder mystery in which the guests must solve Miles' quote-unquote murder. It's part of a cleverly constructed game he expects will take up all of his guests' time, but one that takes an unexpected turn. Braun runs with a motley crew that includes groundbreaking scientist Lionel Toussaint, played by Leslie Odom, Connecticut Governor Claire DeBella, Catherine Hahn, internet men's rights activist Duke Cody, Dave Bautista, model designer Bertie J, Kate Hudson, and a few hangers-on. I, I just like saying those character names, I have to admit. But what gets everyone talking is Block's unexplained presence, plus the arrival of a fifth old friend, Andy Brand, played by Janelle Monet, with whom Miles had a falling out that devolved into a lawsuit. And then the trip takes a murderous turn. We'll get into that and inevitably some spoilers after the break. Disruptors have assembled. Welcome, gang. We got a great weekend. Who's that? Benoit Blanc, the detective? Mr. Blanc, I cannot overstate my gratitude to be here. When's the murder mystery start? I've invited you all to my island. Hi! Because tonight, a murder will be committed. My murder. Once you're dead, will we still be able to talk to you? Yeah, I'm not playing dead the whole weekend, dude. Well, this is truly delightful. Across the island, I've hidden clues. You will have to closely observe each other. If anyone can name the killer, that person wins our game. Any questions? <laughs> Alibarry. That has a kick. Oh my God, what happened? Ladies and gentlemen, there's been a murder, and the killer is in plain sight. For at least one person, this is not a game. I must insist that nobody touch the body. Jeez, detective, who killed the party? All right, Class Onion. Uh, let's discuss it. Uh, who saw it? Well, first off, who saw it in the theater? Me. Uh, me. Not me. I don't want to shame. I, mean, yeah, me too. I, I want saw to, I the way it was Genevieve. intended to be seen on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. I, All right, I, that, I, is, that is literally as far as I think we can get into Glass Onion uh, discussion without spoilers. So yeah. I think we should just call it a uh, good podcast, everybody. Good night. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this four-minute podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, for... For listeners of the future, this 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 film played theaters for one week, uh, exactly and then a week, exactly one week. No, not one day longer before before uh, you know going into into hibernation and then resurfacing on Netflix. Uh, it's a peculiar uh, release strategy. I'll, I'll just say not 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 to make you feel bad, Genevieve, but I am really glad I saw this in the theater. It was really fun seeing it with a crowd that was kind of in its in its hands. But uh, what what? But well, maybe I'm tipping my hand a little bit. I, I did. I really enjoyed this movie a lot. What about everybody else? I really enjoyed it too. It's on my top 10 for the year. But uh, I, 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 while I was kidding, I am going to say if you have not seen this movie yet and you enjoy movies with surprises in them, you really should not listen to this podcast first. Cause like, I don't think we dive into any of these podcasts just saying like, Hey, let's, let's spoil stuff. But so much goes on in this movie that we can't even discuss some of the things that are, are great about it without inevitably and unintentionally giving away a ton of stuff. So much of the just the basic structure and the basic performances of this movie is 
a series of secrets that are just really fun to experience. And one of the reasons I love seeing it in a theater is because, you know, it's it's a longer movie and it's a longer movie that moves quickly with a, a lot of twists. And I really enjoy having that experience in the theater where there are no distractions. Like as, as hard as I try to not have distractions at home, it would be hard for me to watch this as a Netflix movie without ever saying, oh, that was fun. I want to run that back. Or wait, what just happened? I want to run that back. And a lot of the fun of this movie is having to keep up with it as it throws all of these things out that will kind of make you in the back of your head go, wait, what? And then it moves past them. And you don't necessarily realize how often it's going to loop around to things that make you go, hmm. I love the speed at which this movie moves and the degree to which it doesn't necessarily tell you it's moving too fast for you to keep up until it comes back around until it shows you all the things you missed, uh, which is just it's it's a structure that I love. I thought this film was so clever and so much fun. Well, as someone who did watch it at home uh, and did resist the urge to pause and rewind back, I'll say that I think at this point, I am just so trusting of Ryan Johnson and of Knives Out as a conceit. I loved the first one, uh, Far From Alone in that. But I think like when all of these like weird often very humorous details appear and I'm like, oh, what's that about? I have a sense of trust that like it's going to be revealed to me. Like I don't feel like he is a storyteller who wants you to like be in the dark. You know, I think he wants you to be excited about what's coming. And like this movie, like Knives Out before it, I'd say maybe even a little more than Knives Out just felt very much like a ride, a very fun ride, (laughs) you know, and I wanted to see where it went. And that I think kind of kept the temptation to like dwell or dig into any one moment at bay. That said, it's a movie I'm looking forward to rewatching and catching things like the garden that you absolutely cannot smoke in and the reason for that, you know, (laughs) which is a very funny gag when it happens. And it could be just a gag, you know, but as it turns out, like it does have a, a, a deeper meaning. But I enjoy it in the moment as a gag. And I don't really feel a need to like puzzle over it. But really what I I think was most keyed into in this movie is just the performances. I love every one of these performances to different degrees uh adore Janelle Monet in this role or roles I guess uh we can say now that we have oh, given we given plentiful plentiful spoiler <laughs> warnings but I uh, yeah Kate Hudson just a, a delight I don't want to like go so far as to call it like a hangout movie because uh, as we kind of discussed in the last of Sheila podcast, like none of these people really like each other or want to be in each other's company. I just felt such an electricity between everyone that I just wanted more of them interacting. Uh, It never felt like a long movie to me because of that. The characters here are so much broader and more theatrical that I think they they do a much better job of pretending they like each other. Mm-hmm. But that's because they're drawn in such big, broad terms that they're they're meant to be very big and very bright. And part of that brightness is the the very loud pretense of liking each other, where Last of Sheila is more like dialed down and, and human. And part of it is them coming across with that. Yeah, I I don't really care for any of you. I think that's why I liked Kate Hudson's character so much, Mm. because she is very much the loud, like, oh, my God, I'm so excited to see you. But she's also like the one where you get inklings that something's not right in in this relationship. But there's just like two levels to that performance at all times that I really like. Good to see her in a movie that's good, too. (laughs) Kate Hudson? Yeah. yeah, yeah, not 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 someone renowned for appearing in uh, a whole lot of really good movies. Uh, she was like, it was like almost famous, and then just oh well, I don't know. Uh, but but she's got a lot of uh, talent for sure. Still, so, and it's 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 great to see her in this role. The casting is quite strong, top to bottom, in this movie. Yeah, she's really fun, uh, and this is why I mean, everyone's everyone everyone's a lot of fun in, in in this movie. I was thinking about it, I do want to watch it again. I only saw it once, so I might be even a little fuzzy on some of the plot details because there's a lot of plot details in this mm-hmm. film. But uh, I mean, I not to get to comparisons early, but much like Last of Sheila, like every detail here matters. I'm trying to think 
you know, there's sort of a school of screenwriting now where, where every detail sets up something later and it can be really, really annoying. Like uh, I saw in, in the movie Violent Night, it's like really, if you ever watch that, it's really conspicuous. It's like, you know, there's not a single line of dialogue that doesn't set up something later in the film, but not in a clever way. More like this is how the screenwriting manual tells you how to do it. But like here, just like everything matters. Like it, it's just it's just like this really, the construction here is just really beautiful. I mean that was the part where, what what made you know the original Knives Out too so satisfying is this is like it it was just immensely complex. There were so many little gears and cogs and wheels and stuff in the thing, and it's just also it just tick, ticks away beautifully. And uh, that that's the same situation here. I mean, he's he, if anything kind of has given himself an even greater challenge, something of even more structural complexity you know uh even more more so than a donut inside of another <laughs> a donut <laughs> hole inside of another donut hole which was knives out I, I i though i will say i don't like this film as much as is knives out i yeah. i feel like the one thing i think knives out has that this doesn't is is emotion there was like i felt like with anna Armas's character and her relationship with christopher Plummer, watching the film again which i did recently with my daughter who'd never seen it i was just so moved by that relationship and in the way that her the way benoit puts it her kind heart kind of dictates the way that movie goes um and the fact that she's really never under suspicion because he that is that is something that is clear to him immediately uh i i was you know moved by that in a way that that i wasn't by anything here and i think there, the the couple other things i would sort of poke a hole at here with glass audience i think it is uh a little bit strained in the opening i, I once they get to the island i think it, it things smooth out but but um i found that the beginning a little bit hectic oh and, scott um, I, that sorry. was one of my favorite scenes of the year which which one? Just the well, what the, the box, breaking... the yeah. the puzzle box process, and and it where was the it rake ends. Gag. <laughs> it, it, it was total rake gag. Uh, humor. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that, it, but, I mean, but it's, it's got such a beautiful it's, button on it with with Andy at the end. It's, yeah, no, that, no, it's fine. It, uh, it's, it's beautiful. I, I reckon. I mean, again, this is uh, nitpicking. The other thing is, like, I, there is something. It is a bit extremely online. You know what I mean? There's a oh, little sure. bit like there's a little bit of just like if we could just get get him away from the internet for just a little bit like it it would help uh because it felt like okay i'm I, i'm in, i'm immersed in, in this world i recognize a little bit too much from twitter uh and, and need to get away from it and uh, uh you know but but not unsatisfyingly either though in this case the timing is unbelievably good in terms of you know who the real villain of the piece is and you know what he's you know who he suggests and, and what he stands for and <laughs> okay and, so that uh, wasn't it, just me huh you're, you're trying to uh, no. you're trying to get canceled again, Archie Scott. Well, I don't want I don't want to utter his name in case I get my account pulled on on Twitter. But um, <laughs> but it is it, it, I mean that all that stuff is satisfying, and and, and uh, of course any time that that Benoit Blanc is like it's just so stupid everything you do <laughs> is just dumb like like your 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 mystery is dumb and the way you've tried to get yourself out of trouble that was dumb too and you know your box that you sent was like a bunch of child's puzzles very satisfying like a like a daily like one of the one of the mini crosswords the New York Times which is just like man that is just on point so maybe I'm talking myself into liking this one as much but like you know I, I just didn't quite feel like in, in just in terms of the environment too, just that house just had had a really kind of a beautiful cinematic quality that that I don't know know is quite achieved as much by this set, which is distinctive. At least I mean he's doing something completely different. But that's just it. Like it, this this so easily could have been another episode in. I mean it it literally has right. a subtitle, a Knives Out mystery, and sure. it so easily could have been a repeat of Knives Out. And I, I one of the reasons I really enjoyed this movie is because it's so different. Like I think it's inarguably fluffier. It's inarguably it's more of a like, romp. less. <laughs> yeah, it, more more playful. You know, the first one is about income inequity and the immigrant experience and. You know, prejudice and microaggressions in America and the the conceit of old wealth versus new wealth and, and all of this like big, heavy, serious stuff. And it does fun things with those. This one is about like influencers are silly. Men's rights activists are boring and extremely online people are kind of idiots. And it's not nearly as weighty. It's not nearly as important. Capital I important, but it's more fun 
And both of these movies, I think, have exactly their place. Like both of them, I think, are really awesome in completely different ways. Like, I think I enjoyed this one better, maybe just because I'm a little more used to uh, Daniel Craig's ridiculous Southern accent and just kind of over the top performance in this one. But I like them in very different ways from each other. Like, I, I don't think that they rank very neatly on a list of two movies. One is better than the other. I, I think they're such different animals and they're just connected by Benoit Blanc's presence. And I actually really respect that as opposed to him basically just trying to make the same movie again. Oh, of course. Yeah. No, that, that's that that is true. He needed to do something different and he he did. It's very successful. I, you know, and, I, and if he wants, you know, there's going to be another one. And if he wants to keep making them. I'm for it. I mean, like it's it's just it's it's a, one of the highest degree of difficulty genres to pull off for so many different reasons because because you have to deal with large ensembles and you and and you have to fool an audience without cheating an audience. You know, there's so many pieces that have to fit together well. You have to tell tell the story in a not confusing way. I mean, there's just a lot of things that can go wrong in a whodunit that would make it unsatisfying and or or feel like a cheat and like he just two in a row are just every, everything works and is is and it just gets more and more satisfying you know as you know different reveals come about you know I mean, just starting starting with the reveal that the entire premise of the weekend is just you know, <laughs> can be unraveled you know over dinner because it's so hmm. simple and that and that's just, that the payoff for that with the uh, arrow or whatever that shoots into his mm -hmm. uh body with the fake blood is just it's just a wonderful anti-climax ed norton is so fun in in that role too and his, really his facial expression when the crossbow goes off you know after after yes. everything that's come before it it's it, that's a beautiful little piece of you know a voiceless like dialogueless comedy it's just such a great visual and his expression is part of it but it's it's also just like a really nice little bit of like comic timing like editing timing it's so well put together it still is not as good as his first introduction of playing uh, Blackbird on the <laughs> guitar that Paul wrote it on and then tossing it aside, which was just mm, chef's kiss. I al almost had to pause uh, just to account for, for laugh lines in, in my house, but uh, we, we, we did not. But to kind of bring it back to both performances and how uh, Glass Onion is operating a little differently from Knives Out... One thing I really enjoyed about this outing is how Daniel Craig gets to play Benoit Blanc a few different ways, or, or at least a couple different ways in this film. Because before sort of the flashback reveal of why he's there and why Andy slash Helen, Janelle Monet's character, is there. He's presented to us as someone who doesn't know why he's been brought there, and he's confused, and he's on the back foot. And, of course, because he is Benoit Blanc, that is not actually the case, but it does seem that way for the first act of the movie. And it was fun to experience Daniel Craig playing that character in that vain again to the point felt different from knives out but not like disconnected he's a gracious guest in 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 the beginning <laughs> yeah. of this movie he you know he he want, he's excited he's happy to be there at least that's the that's the part that he's playing he doesn't you know know why he's there but this is a what a wonder wonderful uh uh, invitation to to receive and you know and, and of course you know his introduction it's just in, so wide eyed and yeah. knives out <laughs> and the original knives out is like is kind of menacing because he's 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 mm -hmm. fiddling on the piano and people are like who the hell is this guy you know and uh, mm -hmm. and uh, and they discover he's the guy who they know from that New Yorker story that that somebody tweeted about I, I also love the glimpse of Blanc at home yeah you in, know, the bathtub. Restless, in his in his bathtub. <laughs> Yeah, on, confined to the you know because of COVID, talking to his, on a his Zoom good, call with what uh, <laughs> playing Among Us, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and, uh, and, and Natasha Leone, star yeah, of Johnson's upcoming show Poker Face, in which she plays a Columbo-esque character. Also, apparently, living with Hugh Grant. Apparently, well, <laughs> living with Hugh Grant, or a character played by Hugh Grant. I was, is, what were we supposed to take that as like a romantic partners type of thing? I, 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 I think Johnson has said away from the film that he is confirmation that Blanc is is gay, 
But, you know, there's no real, there's no complete explanation within the film. I think that's definitely the implication. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just, you know, I don't think he, Hugh Grant's cameo is uh, not credited. So I think we can figure out just, just I think our, our it's a mystery for us to solve, I think. He's on the MDMB as Philip. He's, oh, it's Philip? Okay. Yes. All right, it's Philip then. That's the way Disney likes to handle, like, handle, like, it's, it's gay characters. It's like, this is just, they tell you in the press or something. <laughs> I do like gay. the idea of just kind of getting a little, a little sliver more about Blanc mm-hmm. in every, every film. Uh, right. I, I, I like that idea quite a bit. Yeah. I had not realized, I, it had, I had not quite made the connection between Stephen Sondheim being on that Zoom call and Stephen Sondheim being the writer of The Last of Sheila, which inspired this movie. Like, yep. that's that's just a, a delicious little piece of complexity there. Uh, looping back to what Genevieve was saying about the uh, Daniel Craig's performance in, in particular, like, I got to agree on that. Just the fact that there are scenes, it feels like there are certain scenes where he's too big there are certain scenes that feel like he's kind of stiff there are scenes where he feels like he's a little off model and every single time you kind of eventually loop back and find out what he was doing in that sequence that affected that performance and the the depth of it is really fun and then janelle monet i I, god i love her so much on film and this movie asks a lot of her in terms of doing very different things uh, in very different scenes. Again, and putting on this- a broad Southern accent, <laughs> which felt like a wink to me. Once again, the structure comes back around to to tell you what was going on in so many different sequences that give you just such a different perspective on her performance and her, her character in those moments. I, man, I, I like just structurally speaking, I love this movie so much. Well, and she gets just incredible scene of the of destroying the glass <laughs> onion, you know, like, man, that must have been fun hmm. for her to do. And is certainly a a big way to end. I feel a little bad for the Mona Lisa. I got to say, <laughs> yeah. I, get the, I, I get the symbolism, but you know, it's pretty, it's a pretty good painting. Yeah, <laughs> are you familiar with it? I mean, it's it's kind of nice. But but the payoff, the the line of being uttered in the same breath as the Mona Lisa, worth the payoff, right? That's a great one. <laughs> that that payoff, and then there's two shots of Monet framed with with like the Mona Lisa with a similar expression. So you know you can't, mm-hmm. yeah, you got you got to love it. Yeah, what I mean, what other painting are you gonna? <laughs> the girl with the pearl. You just destroyed the girl with the pearl earring. <laughs> hey, I love that painting. There's a whole it movie a about one. that painting. Yes. A book, too. Whereas there's never been a movie about the Mona Lisa or involving the <laughs> Mona Lisa in any way. <laughs> yeah. Well, well there's, there is a film called Mona Lisa. And I think that's about some somebody else. I think yeah, that's yeah. about some lady named Lisa who's, uh, you know, a moaner. Well, it sounds like we're running out of gas to talk about this for right now. Uh, with that bit of silliness, we're going we're gonna to break. We'll be right back. Alongside and underneath the parquet, you've been charged with a serious task. Because tonight, in this very room, a murder will be committed. My murder. You will have to closely observe the crime. Consider what you know about each other. Know that across the island, I've hidden clues. Some may be helpful, some may misdirect. That's for you to determine. But if anyone can name the killer, tell me how they achieved the murder, and most importantly, what was the motive? That person wins our game. Any questions? Uh, wait, what do we win? I, what do you mean, what do you, what do you, what do you want? No, no, nothing. I just, I, I just thought maybe there was a prize or something. I, I, an iPad or like. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Yeah. No, no. The winner gets an iPad. Now it's time for connections. When we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common, I think a really good way to start here is just talking about how the biggest thing, which is these are games that are kind of inflicted on on guests in, in the spirit of levity, but with you know without you know there there any warning whatsoever. I'll get to the. I think one of the biggest differences. I don't think there's quite. While Miles Braun is a very controlling character, I don't think there's quite the malevolence of uh, of, of intent here uh, as in uh, Last of Sheila. It feels like it's more of an ego play than anything else, but perhaps you see it differently. 
I don't think there's nearly the sense of wanting to undo his guests because, I mean, he's not trying to get one of them to confess to killing somebody that Miles loved. What there is instead, though, is the degree to which he's like blackmailing or controlling or harming each one of them. So there still is a malevolence. It's just not really tied to the game, which the game is about him showing off how how clever he is. But also being about controlling, you know, both of these games kind of have different emotions at the like different deadly sins at the bottom, I think, of, you know, pride versus wrath. But they're both uh, coming from people who are very caught up in their own cleverness and very excited to take control of their their guests for the weekend. I think that there's an interesting contrast between how delighted all of the, the guests except Andy are at the beginning of Glass Onion when they're solving the puzzles together because they're anticipating, you know, getting whisked away for this like billionaire's exciting fun vacation. Like they're anticipating a, a gift for them versus how little they seem to be looking forward to the games that take place actually on the island when they would rather just be, you know, drinking and lounging and and talking as opposed to solving a mystery. I don't think that those original games they're reluctant for. It's the later murder mystery that they're just kind of like, God, we have to do this. Why? Mm -hmm. And in both movies, there's just sort of a sense of, you know, to get the get the vacation to get the benefit of your very rich friend coddling you and costing you and, and covering all your costs. You have to play his games, even if you don't want to. And it just kind of casts an air of, you know, reluctance and lack of freedom over both of these stories that take place in these very, you know, freeing environments among very rich people that I think is just kind of maybe a little schadenfreude for us. There's just always that messaging in movies about uh, the lifestyles of the rich and famous that also involve like this kind of stress or conflict that's like, eh, you know, freedom isn't free. Being rich does not mean living happily ever after. Like these people are miserable too. They're just miserable in different ways. And it's because there are assholes among them that, you know, want to want to control their every move. They're also both games and like player dynamics, I guess, that are heavily informed by crimes, incidents, whatever you want to call them, that took place prior to this game. Obviously, there is the the death of Sheila in the hit and run that looms over the game there and shapes it in a really important way. And then in Glass Onion, there is the falling out between Andy and Miles and resulting lawsuit in which everyone perjured themselves and, and know it knows it. And they are not aware of it at the time, but there is also Andy's murder that is hanging over that and informing Helen's presence there. But even before they know that, when they still think she's Andy being there, it is very unsettling <laughs> to everyone that she is there because of what happened prior to that. And I think to them sort, sort of adds a layer of menace to this fun murder mystery game. Like uh, they all seem a little, like I said, unsettled, uh, Miles in, in particular, but, you know, still kind of forging ahead with it despite that. And it adds a real sort of air of discomfort to the whole game. One thing I would say too, I mean, we, we talked in the first episode about Clinton's sadism, you know, his, his kind of almost blanket, naked contempt for uh, his guests and how, how this, the game, of course, you know, gets in, it, you know, it involves, uh, his game involves a lot of very personal revelations about each of them. And there's, there's nothing remotely nice about that. Well, in this case, the game itself is fairly innocuous, except, you know, when you think about, I, I think just, I, I think there's kind of the, the, this idea of Miles staging his own murder is, is, is in a way is making that a game is kind of a more passive aggressive form mm -hmm. in the sense that he understands perfectly well. And they, he knows that they know too, that they all rely on him, right? And that he, he's acknowledging that they all have hostility they all feel hostility toward him for one reason or another, but he can make a game out of that because there's nothing they can do. He is he is their 
source of money and, and status. And if he goes away, a lot of the things that they have also go away. And uh, and so it's sadistic in its own way. It's just a much more passive aggressive way than than in Clinton's game, which is more direct. Yeah, I mean, what what more arrogant form of uh, expression of power is there than expression of power over death itself? Like he's he's planning on, quote unquote, dying and then controlling them all for a weekend, like from the pretense of, of death and then coming back from it. It's a pretty arrogant game even before you take into account the fact that he expects all of them to spend their supposed leisure weekend, like running around trying to pretend that they care that he's dead, that it bothers them that he's dead, and that they want justice for his death, as opposed to maybe all being a little relieved at his no longer having control of them. Another thing is, like, we talked about the, how cleverly both these films are constructed, but they're they're different as well. I, I almost feel like, you know, if you were to diagram Glass Onion out, it would be like this perfectly symmetrical thing. Perhaps not so much with with uh, Last of Sheila, although although maybe maybe that too. There's certainly, uh, I feel like you know Glass Onion is taking its cues from that in terms of like the intricacy of the structure. But but uh, do they use them in different ways? I found this there, there, there'd be a lot of rhymes in the construction of the, of the two films, and particularly the idea of. You know the premise of the of the film being blown up halfway through. I mean, in the sense that um, Edward Norton's game is foiled very swiftly by Benoit Blanc, and and then Clinton dies. <laughs> you know, he he didn't anticipate that happening. Um, uh, you know, two clues into his his own game, and so and so uh, and so the movies have to pivot from our expectations of what they were because I think I think in both cases. You know, we we expect all of it to play out, and maybe there's maybe maybe the game turns real at a certain point, but I don't think one we expect Clinton to die halfway through the movie because he's going to be the one who's going to be to give us the big reveal at the end, and then and then we and then we certainly don't expect Edward Norton's character to have his you know the, the, his entire weekend plan foiled embarrassingly at that moment as well i mean those are wonderful things to pivot on and and i think one suggests the other so i think it's it's definitely something that ryan johnson appears to have uh have plucked from from last of sheila stylistically they also both let the audience in on a secret before the uh characters all know it which is sort of a uh, not unique to these two films, but they both uh, do it notably, and Glass Onion does it to a much greater extent. In that we kind of rewind quite a ways back and see, you know, whole extended scenes, you know, between Benoit and Helen and Andy's murder, and you know, um, that's all information that we are getting in a different way than the characters get it. Uh, whereas in Last of Sheila, unless I'm forgetting something, the only scenes I think that kind of fall under that category are the ones with Ra- Raquel Welch talking to someone off screen and letting them know, and by extension us know, that there is another layer to this game. But the way it's done in Last of Sheila is still mysterious you know it's only like it's only peeling off one layer for for us whereas glass onion is just like you know showing us basically the whole thing and then watching us or letting us watch and see how it plays out i think one contrast between them though is for me the last of sheila's maybe one of its biggest problems is that it kind of comes down in the end to like a very long speech followed by another very long speech that's basically just let me let me explain this mystery to you and the mystery itself is a puzzle box like the all of the little reveals of why specific things happened or when they happened especially mysteries like why did you respond to lee threatening suicide in the exact way that you did why did other people respond that way little things like that it explains in the same sort of satisfying like all the tumblers falling into place kind of way but I just didn't find the end of Last of Sheila very dynamic. It's way, way too much modeled on Sleuth itself. Whereas Ryan Johnson finds ways to make that kind of traditional, the detective explains what happened to you speech, a lot more like physically dynamic and have a lot more kind of physical stakes. There's some fun in Last of Sheila to the setup of that speech where Tom goes around carefully locking the doors and you realize you know, this this is probably not going to end well for Philip. 
And there's a big open question of whether he realizes that and has taken it into account. There's a, a physical menace there, but it's all very low key. And generally just having one character talk for 10 minutes is not necessarily a satisfying dynamic uh, climax to a movie. So like I, I give points to Glass Onion for making it kind of like bigger and louder and more mobile in, in terms of unraveling the the mystery at the end but then also just kind of going off into much more of a an action sequence than last of sheila gets that comes after the reveals are revealed when we're looking at the at the end of everything and then figuring out what we're going to do about it last sheila is maybe darker and more personal in that way uh glass onion maybe more fun I don't think anyone would argue that Glass Onion is uh, <laughs> less fun <laughs> than Last of Sheila. Last of Sheila is fun. Last of Sheila is fun, yeah. but it- there is the puppetness of oh, yeah. uh, that that face. Oh yeah, which- strangling him with the puppets. That's fun. It's yeah. and and him just saying, "I don't, I don't have any gloves." Like almost yeah. apologetically, <laughs> like well, I, I'm, I'm gonna murder you now. I'm not sorry about that. I'm sorry that it's got to happen in this kind of embarrassing way. It's gonna look a little weird. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're gonna feel a little humiliated to die at the hands of puppets. You might find yourself laughing. <laughs> while you're dying but uh I, I, I apologize for that uh I, you know we talked about the commentary sort of the satire of of last of sheila and i think you know it's i don't think glass onion tries to hide the fact there's some social commentary going on there do they use their sort of satirical elements to different ends i always think of last of sheila as a just as a br- broad expression of contempt toward this world of vipers that is hollywood yeah. whereas i think there's a there's a, a larger agenda at play in in glass onion where where the type of person elon musk-esque person that, that uh edward orton represents you know the billionaire class uh people who 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 whose money alone affords them a reputation that they're that they're you know, actual intelligence and uh, and ideas and integrity belie. I mean, that, that that seems to me a much sharper piece of commentary, much more deliberate political piece of commentary than what you get in Last of Sheila, which is just more of a generalized contempt. I mean, it's a pretty sharp, biting Hollywood satire. If, you know, to go back to our discussion uh, last week, like if you take the ending at face value that like there is actually going to be oh, a, yeah. a movie made as as a, it, as like a result play. of it, it i mean yeah. it becomes like the player in that respect right sure. it, yeah which is again it sort of ends at the same uh, on the same kind of beat of just like oh it's all gonna get kind of processed into a movie anyway yeah it's gonna be called the player <laughs> anyway <laughs> Both these films are filled with recognizable faces. And in some ways, well, here's one thing that James Mason said was when people would ask it, like who the character was based on, it would basically say, well, it's kind of just, I'm playing a James Mason type, (laughs) you know, (laughs) presumably not the molesting thing. Some of the other cast members are kind of playing their types as well. Raquel Welch Welch, is kind of playing a Raquel Welch type. What about in Glass Onion? Are are the, is the cast used to similar ends there? I mean, in some ways is, you know, Kate Hudson reflecting on the Kate Hudson screen persona, Bautista, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, What do you think? I think Dave Bautista is in a, a really fun way. I mean, I've uh, like I I worry that what I'm about to say will come across as like judgmental or negative in some way, and I absolutely don't mean it to. I've interviewed the guy, and he's delightful, and he's very very aware of his persona, and he's very aware of the way that he's kind of weaponized it a bit, but the way that his his kind of later life career has let him branch out and and play new kind of characters i feel like he's kind of playing the dumb lunk who kind of got lucky and found sort of uh, an online sort of fame but is tailoring his persona to fit kind of like his his physical appearance and what people expect of him and i think that that's kind of a path that he's followed in real life as well I think that his character is much smarter than he lets on than the persona that he's trying to play. I think he's also much softer than the character that he's trying to play, like on his podcasts, on his videos, in in the places where he's gone viral and has built this following. 
the sequence between him and his mom where his mom smacks him down kind of shows that like he doesn't really have the like belligerence and aggression that he's kind of pretending to in this persona. And I love that that character is is full of all of these little layers. I thought the Bautista thing was kind of a kind of an easy one though to have that to have the raging misogynist being uh you know tamed quite easily by his mother. I mean that's in keeping with how broad a lot of this film is in terms of the targets it's skewering and and how it's skewering them. I I don't necessarily see a problem with that, but then I'm pretty much up for mocking men's rights activists in any flavor or format you care to care to mock them in. Yeah, there's also the whole whiskey element <laughs> too, uh, you know, and I think it's again just to kind of dwell a little on you know this character being a little broader obvious but you know the the men's rights activists being semi-willingly cuckolded is certainly uh expected irony i guess there (laughs) but uh, i'll tell you as as an alpha male myself i uh (laughs) i feel like i i I feel like i feel like making fun of those guys is kind of a beta move (laughs) thank you scott you think they're Uh, a bunch of you think anybody that's mocking them is a bunch of soy boys Oh, and I, I just want to note, Tasha, it's not a podcast. He's, he has a Twitch channel, of course. Mm. Oh, yeah, uh, good point. Because yeah. he, yeah, he does talk about, you know, talking about in terms of subscribers uh, and performances, it's it's very similar in some yeah. ways. When are we moving to Twitch? When are we doing this live? When are we doing this like with video? What, you know, what, what, what's, what's keeping us back? When we're all 20 years old and beautiful, we will, uh, we'll move to Twitch. There's filters, oh, there's Tasha. The fans, the fans, the fans, all the filters I'll put on myself. See the fans might like the raw feed. Maybe. Let's put it to a vote. <laughs> and it might, and it might kind of, it might, uh, yeah, they can see all of her <laughs> digressions like about, this. What about Leslie Odom Jr. here? I yeah. He's maybe the character that I had the hardest time pinning down mm-hmm. in terms of what his narrative purpose is. Like, he's demonstrably, you know, kind of the smartest one of them and the only one of them that's really making something real. You know, you you have a politician who's all about surfaces and power manipulation and lies. You have an influencer. You have a, a Twitch streamer. You know, people who are basically just performing and and being personalities. And then in the mix, you have this guy who's a brilliant scientist who is somehow responsible for turning notes like children equal NFT question mark into (laughs) viable businesses. He's kind of the quietest. He's kind of the most removed. He's just kind of the hardest to pin down in a lot of ways. And like Leslie Odom Jr. doesn't strike me as somebody who has as much of a a type as uh, Mm -hmm. some of these others. Like he's played a lot of very very sharp and ambitious strivers, but I don't necessarily get that as much from this character. Like he's he's sharp, but he seems mostly willing to kind of hang back in the lee of what my Miles does and just kind of like play clean up and do the actual work. Well, to bring it back to the connection here and sort of Keith's question of, you know, if uh, we think these actors are, you know, playing versions of either them themselves or, or real people, I don't think there is necessarily any sort of one-to-one casting in Glass Onion that is at the level of, say, Raquel Welch in uh, Last of Sheila. I think these roles are more just sort of designed to play to these actors' various strengths, uh, particularly comedically. And uh, in terms of Leslie Odom Jr., like he is... You know he's a good he's a fine performer. He's not necessarily an established comedic performer in the way that some of these other actors are. Like Catherine Hahn, like you kind of know if you're writing a role for Catherine Hahn, you're doing it with intent, knowing what she is going to to bring to the role. You know, um, like it feels like a Catherine Hahn character. It doesn't feel like a comment on Catherine Hahn, the actor. If that makes sense, is a, is a mm-hmm. distinction. That said. Miles is definitely Elon. <laughs> like that, that 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 feels like <laughs> the the clearest sort of uh, inspiration point in in Glass Onion. But I think the rest of the characters feels like a little too much of a stretch, unless you want to like get into like Janelle Monet being a chameleon and therefore like playing two characters. But uh, you know, she's just she's just a good performer. 
I mean, Leslie Odom just represents the type of person who can make you know an idiot billionaire seem like a genius. Yeah, you know? <laughs> who can take who can take kind of the rid- absurd notes that this disruptive visionary faxes him and make Teslas out of it. You know, he's a I mean? foil, so, which is what Leslie Odom Jr.'s most famous role to date is. Also, <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about Aaron Burr, by the way. <laughs> sir there's that too i mean how is he not elon musk i don't know <laughs> norton's norton's better looking norton seemed out maybe had an idea in you know, bronze seemed to have a better idea had an idea at some point <laughs> i don't know uh we're gonna get too deep into i mean he, he drives uh what what's the what's the blue what, what kind of car is blue it's not a tesla uh it's not a bm what what brand was blue the car I oh, think geez, I want to say it was a Jaguar, but I'm the wrong person to ask. He seems to, if not know about uh, it's art. It's a Porsche. Oh, a Porsche, of course. He uh, he seems to, if not know about art and pop culture, like on a deep level, to at least like appreciate or want to seem like he appreciates it in a way that I don't really associate with Elon Musk. But other than that, it seems pretty clear, especially like what scott was talking about uh as far as incredible wealth conferring a sense of uh genius that is not maybe actually there what is the line that the film lands really hard on a line that benoit says uh, early in the film and i'm trying to remember what it was you know what you almost know you have to know what i'm talking about because it's like it's so isolated and so like such a kind of a applause line. Am I crazy? It's a dangerous thing to mistake speaking without thought for speaking the truth. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, one of the things that we haven't exactly, uh, we we kind of, we kind of touched on glancingly, we we especially touched on it with Last of Sheila, is that both of these stories pretty consciously take place among people who are either rich enough or close enough to somebody rich that they can live these like just very luxurious lifestyles. Like these are both fantasy settings, like aspirational fantasy settings where people are unhappy. And that seems to be kind of part of the point is like we're looking at lifestyles of the rich and famous, but we're also kind of like looking at a little bit of miserableism. Now, I mean, one of the one of the side notes to all of this is, you know, if if you're rich, you can afford to, like, design your own house uh, around a Beatles song, or you can afford to force all of your friends to play stupid games and win stupid prizes. But we we kind of want to just bring in one of our favorite elements of Glass Onion. If you happen to be incredibly rich, you get weird hangers on who just show up at random in the movie. You're talking they're, about they're, Daryl. They're, they're, they're working through some stuff, I think, is, is, is what we're told, right? <laughs> yeah. I, as far as what is this based on, I mean, I got, I got serious Cato Kalin vibes from the presence of Daryl, the guy who's just kind of, you know, bumming around and eating cereal throughout Glass Onion. But when it comes to, like, who are we skewering and, and what are we saying about them? Like, what does this movie say about you know the eat the rich narrative we've seen so much of in uh in 2022 and that i guess people were still enjoying uh back in the the 1970s as well mm-hmm. what is, what does it what does daryl say what is daryl there for i don't think daryl's there for anything like and i think that's the joke of daryl like i think daryl's a red herring that's that's what what daryl is you know like i i, w- I was waiting for him to matter in some way in this movie where seemingly everything matters and the fact that he doesn't i think is kind of a, a joke in itself and maybe just a nod to the the genre in which we're working sort of a red herring personified unless i am missing something about his importance i mean i think it's it kind of goes to what i was talking about, about how how beautifully constructed this is and how everything has a place and it's perfectly <laughs> symmetrical and then there's, and there's daryl and then there's which daryl. I, kind, I kind of love <laughs> And, and I guess he would be then. Um, uh, it's the actor's Noah Sagan, right? Mm-hmm. So they're right. Uh, yeah, I mean, he would be he would be Ryan Johnson's the equivalent to Dick Miller and Joe Dante, you know, in terms of his mm-hmm. relationship to Ryan Johnson. I mean, somebody who who pops up in a lot of his movies and and um, you know they're they're pals, and that's just going to be kind of a little feature of his films. And if there's not uh, room for a a large part for him in this a movie like this, just as there wasn't always room for a large part for 
for Dick Miller in Joe Dante movies that he's going to he'll throw him in there anyway. He'll find some way in. And this is this is the kind of cute way of doing it. John Ratzenberger and Pixar. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, Keith and I were just wrote, were just writing about uh, the film matinee, the Joe Dante film matinee. And, you know, and, and uh, Dick Miller and, and John Sales, who are both buddies of Joe Dante's kind of t- uh, turn up as uh, dudes who are sort of John Goodman's lackeys i guess or, or or promotional goons on his pictures and uh you know you just you love to see it if you're a fan it's kind of a little little wink what a team wish that was wish they could have done more movies together for sure just real quick to attempt to connect daryl to last of sheila like it's not a perfect one-to-one but i think sort of the similar character type we get in last of sheila is just basically all the staff on the boat that uh diane carroll's character kind of works through uh one, one at a time uh you know the different sailors i guess that's true i can't remember if the the one she shows up with the at the end is vittorio rather than guido right he's he's the one who stepped in for guido I mean, the fact that they're interchangeable is kind of part of the joke. But right. uh, yeah, you're right. The fact that he's just there. There's this this big tense confrontation between two people we've been like watching play cat and mouse for 15 minutes who have been there through the whole story. And then one of the other major players shows up and, and interrupts them before murder can take place. And then there's this random guy. Because yeah. why not? <laughs> yeah. And also, they are the characters who are not wealthy. You know, they are they are staff instead of hangers on, but they you know do sort of uh, serve to reflect the absurdities of the super wealthy through their presence. Well, uh, as as a member of the super wealthy, I find <laughs> these films hugely offensive. Um, but if you do want to watch them. The Last Shield is available. Uh, it's it's rentable through the usual platforms, and it's on DVD. I kind of wish I, I wish I'd tracked that down. I, would, I wasn't aware of that until till today, but there's an audio commentary on it, so maybe I'll buy it. And you can watch it uh, if you have Hulu. It is on. Well, what? do you do you have a Hulu Live subscription? Because I, I got it on. No. I got it on TC. I got it on, uh, via TCM on demand. It came. I got it, on my, it came through my Hulu uh, mm. without me having to pay for it. But I think it's only because I maybe because I have Hulu Live. And you get a Mackowitz uh, uh, introduction. Oh, my God. Do you ever. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery is currently on Netflix. Uh, Will it return to theaters? That's a whole other mystery. (laughs) Spoiler, no. Uh, We'll be right back after a short break with your next picture show. Send to recommend a film or favorite-related item that complements this set of episodes or not. I don't think we're going to compliment that much. Uh, we call it your next picture show in the hopes we'll put some interesting choices on your radar. I think, and and, and since it's the last episode of the of our of the year, um, uh, just of the year, we're coming back. Uh, we're going to be, uh, you know, we're going to do a best of pretty soon. But in the meantime, while it's still December, people are listening. We're going to go through a bunch of films. You know, a bunch of films will come out. We're going to pick a few that you might enjoy. They're either in theaters now or coming to a theater near you or something to be on the lookout for when it's on streaming um scott you want to kick it off yeah i wanted to really give a mention to a little film that that i've been seeing appearing on a lot of top 10 lists and will certainly be very high on mine it's a first feature by a director named uh, charlotte wells and it's called after sun this is a this is a uh a beautiful independent film it's set it's set kind of at a a at a at a resort in uh in turkey where uh where a father is is taking his uh 11 year old daughter for a little bit of a vacation uh for a week and you know and and i think i think one of the things that you know it's a period piece it's a memory piece it's hard to just to really describe how it's a memory piece other than you you feel it and then eventually it reveals itself to be something that the girl is is reflecting on later as an adult and so all of the action that you're seeing all of these interactions between the father and the daughter are so you know uh, seen through her memory take on a different meaning and it reminded me so much it's been such an, a a theme this year with a lot of my favorite films with the fablemans with armageddon time and not, now with this or they're all about people who would look back at their childhood and understand the world of adults a lot better than they might have at the time and and uh and this film i mean it just 
crumpled my heart <laughs> it through it I, I was just it was so crushing and beautiful and and unique in, in its way it's it, you know it, like i said it is a memory piece but it's not it's certainly not nostalgic it's uh, very detailed and personal and um i just i loved it i mean it's just it it, it kind of really bowled me over emotionally and I, and I and i felt like it was a a quietly a very a- accomplished and assured piece of filmmaking certainly for a first-time filmmaker uh, so i i loved it and i think it's kind of starting to catch on it's it's for what it is it's it seems to be doing reasonably well Maybe the saddest karaoke scene I've ever seen in a movie, too. I mean, and, the, I, and, the, I, and the saddest happy birthday. Yeah, I love it. I mean, it's, it's one of my favorite films of the year. That yeah. movie is, it's really something else. Uh, like, I watched it aware that it was a, a strong emotional piece, really well acted with with just a lot of tension and, and interplay and, and color. And then once you realize that what you're seeing is a set of memories specifically a a daughter looking back on her father as she herself has just become a mother and is thinking about like how her parent shaped her. There's just, there's a lot there. But then I read this piece that Sam Adams wrote in Slate. Uh, The headline was after son has the best final shot of any movie in years, but I actually found it by searching the dreaded uh, ending of after son explained Hmm. because there's some really elliptical stuff that happens there, like playing, with callbacks and I wanted to see what somebody else made of it and Sam just found levels of like parallelism and connection throughout a lot of like really Mm. subtle elements in After Sun some of which I'd picked up on but not connected fully thematically and some of which I missed entirely so I I highly recommend that piece uh, after watching After Sun and I, I recommend watching After Sun yeah it's wonderful uh, as far as my recommendation, I actually really want to go to bat for a movie I was not expecting to care for at all, which is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio on Netflix. It's a stop motion picture. Guillermo del Toro himself had kind of billed this movie as reaching back to the Carlo Collati novel from 1883, a, a children's book that I read when I was a little kid. Like my my fascination with books being adapted to movies and radically changed in the process really does stretch back to childhood. And I read the Carlotti novel because I was curious what had where the Disney film had emerged from. And I was fascinated with the novel because it's so dark compared to the Disney version and and the Disney version already being a pretty dark movie for Disney. But man, like you would expect Guillermo del Toro to find even darker themes and like lean into the darkness on Pinocchio. What he does instead, I think, is pretty remarkable. He takes a bunch of the elements from the book and then he tells his own story with them. That I was not expecting at all. I, I was kind of thinking, like, why did we need another Pinocchio in a year where we've we already had there were there are a couple of different screen versions of Pinocchio, including a, a live action version from Disney. This is kind of its own story. And it's almost more about Geppetto and grief and one of Guillermo del Toro's favorite topics like fascism, the the rise of fascism and how it affects people and how to fight back against it. It's about one of his other favorite topics, which is, you know, monsters and unusual creatures that can't fit into their world and are, are trying to navigate that under their understanding of the world. And one of his other other favorite topics, this one I I wrote about uh, in conjunction with Crimson Peak for io9 uh, during my my brief stint as a, a freelancer, about how he's just obsessed with the ghosts of the past, with usually actual literal ghosts that haunt us and and hang over us and the difficulty of moving past the dead in your life in order to to forge a future which is what geppetto is doing here he invents a a son for geppetto and a, a huge story between them before geppetto in, encounters a, a tremendous loss and then disintegrates under the weight of it it's a story about grief and, and parenthood And then it ends up being a story about individualism and defining your own way in the world and making your own decisions, which is the literal opposite of Collodi's Pinocchio, which is about 
you know, obedience and and being a good citizen and a good boy and uh, an obedient child. So he ends up just completely subverting this story in order to tell th- just the most obviously distinctive Guillermo del Toro version of Pinocchio possible. It is visually gorgeous. Uh, you know, it's just some some great, like really rich, detailed, lived in, thought through stop motion. It's got some very, very weird humor. Uh, it has a pretty in- incredible cast, including Kate Blanchett as a monkey that just makes monkey noises. It was the <laughs> only part left at the point where she came to him and begged him for a role in it. And he said, you could be the monkey and make monkey noises. And she said, sure, I'll, I will do that. <laughs> so, yeah, just a, a really bizarre collision of strains and, and themes and ideas and this story that all of us, I think, sort of culturally know the the big outlines of just turned into something really new and unique. And, you know, you can watch it on Netflix. You can watch it on Netflix. You can watch everything on Netflix, right? <laughs> well, Keith, what about you? Yeah, you can't watch my film on Netflix. Maybe not yet anyway. Um, I'm going to recommend uh, a film called No Bears, which is coming out later this month. It's directed by Jafar Panahi, um, the Iranian director who notably both because it's notable and in you know conjunction with this film is currently in uh prison uh for uh you know quote unquote propaganda against the regime he's been in and out of trouble in iran for over a decade at this point and kind of symbolic of the difficult relationship the film industry there uh, has with the government but you know i th- that's a story worth pursuing uh you know on, on on your own if you get a chance um the film would be remarkable even without that context although it certainly matters panahi uh, stars as himself or as a uh, i'm not sure he's even named but as a film director who in wants moved travels to a remote village not far from the border with turkey to sort of direct via skype or zoom or whatever, a film being made in Turkey. And in the tradition of, of other Panahi films and and other Iranian films, particularly like, like Close Up and, and uh, Kiristami's Close Up, which we, we've talked about on the show, and and uh, White Balloon, uh, Panahi's first film, which he co-wrote with, with Kiristami, it kind of, in a very, you know, humble, no special effects way, kind of twist reality on, in on itself as, as his sort of his own... Uh, situation with Iran is reflected in the director's running afoul of local customs. And his cast's uh, story starts to meld with the stories of the characters he's playing. And I mean, I don't want to get into spoilers here or anything, but it, it, it takes some really intriguing twists and has a remarkable ending. Certainly one, uh, in a year that has a fair number of, of uh, great endings uh, after Sun uh, being another one of them, a uh, really haunting fi- final shot. Uh, this has a, this has one to remember too. So, so seek it out. It's No, no Bears by uh, Jafar Panahi. Yeah, this actually has, It's as of this moment, it has not, well, actually, I think what, when people are listening, it will have come out. So this is this mm-hmm. is not something that is going to be available right away. Uh, but you actually could be see it in a theater first. You know, if you live in a if you live in a city that will that is playing it, and then it will then we'll see it. You uh, heard it here first, everyone. Unless unless you no you know follow film criticism. That's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. We'll be back next week with our first episode of the new year. We'll be sharing our respective list for the top 10 films of 2022. Maybe more. Who knows? We, we, we might stuff some more in there. For now, we welcome your feedback on, on both Last of Sheila and Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. Anything else film-related you'd like to talk about? You can email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha? I am the film and streaming editor at Polygon.com. I'm still hanging on to Twitter, not really posting anything political or mentioning any, you know, names, large names, famous names, names of uh, self-styled disruptors <laughs> uh, over there at Tasha Robinson, uh, no space. Genevieve, what about you? I am still the TV editor at Vulture.com, and I am still on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky, where I primarily retweet the tweets of writers who have written brilliant things that I have edited. Uh, Scott, how about you? 
Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias, and I'm fighting the fight, right? That's why we got on Twitter <laughs> to fight rather than just to, you know, shoot the shit with friends. So I'm there at, at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, you can find my work primarily at The Reveal. That's that's my uh, big outlet with uh, Mr. Keith Phipps. Uh, that's thereveal.substack.com. Uh, check it out. You subscribe for free, and then, you know, if you like it, you can pay up and join our community, which is uh, a lot of fun. Um, you can also find my work in the New York Times and Vulture and The Guardian and other fine publications. Keith Phipps, what about you? Oh, I'm a freelance writer. Traditionally, I post my links to my clips uh, to what I write on uh, Twitter at kphipps3000. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But, 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 hey. Substack, thereveal.substack.com with my buddy Scott Tobias. I write a lot of stuff there. I write for places like GQ, The Ringer, TV Guide, and Vulture, uh, Rolling Stone. Yeah, I'm kind of all over the place these days. As for this this podcast here, you can stay updated on The Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod. You can get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And as always, we appreciate your rating and reviews on Apple Podcasts wherever you listen to the show. Thanks to Dan the Baked Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Are you warm? Are you real? Mona Lisa Are just a cold and lonely lovely work of art Mona Lisa